Welcome to the Keeping Things Alive podcast out of Buffalo, New York. My name is Laura Evans, and I'm the author of Silent Seasons, Chasing Sustainability Through the Law. I'm also a natural resources planner, an active environmental lawyer, animal lover, and gardener. John Washington co-creates the podcast with me. John is an organizer, political trainer and educator, and Afrofuturist. The Keeping Things Alive podcast is here to explore the opportunities and challenges as we all live together on this beautiful, harsh, and interconnected planet Earth. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Keeping Things Alive podcast. Today is Tuesday, September 6, 2022, and this is the first like regular episode of Season 7 of the Keeping Things Alive podcast. Last week, uh, we published an episode kind of welcoming for the new season and reflecting back on what's been going on the past year. And then this episode is going to be sharing an interview with Margaret Wooster, who is a water planner here in Western New York and has written a couple books about sustainability in the water planning space. And yeah, I'm really excited to share that with you. So before I get into this interview that is the subject of this episode. I just wanted to say that the book launch for Silent Seasons, Chasing Sustainability Through the Law has really just started about last week. There is the ebook is available for sale on Amazon, Kobo, and Ingram Spark. And then next month, there's going to be the actual like soft cover physical copies of the book that will be available for sale. And I did an entire pre-sale campaign earlier this spring, so a lot of people ordered books then. Those are at the printers right now. And yeah, everything's like coming together, and I'm really excited to share this book with more people, especially listeners of this podcast, because the book and the podcast are definitely linked, and I would say that the big connection is sustainability and trying to explore what that means, what does it mean to yeah, keep things alive, keep things sustainable. And yeah, so I'm really excited about sharing both this podcast and the book at the same time. I thought that to introduce this particular episode with Margaret Wooster, I would go back to um, one of the lessons in Silent Seasons. So the entire book is set up as different, you know, parts of my life and stories of different work experiences, and then the lessons that I've learned. And so one of the lessons that I learned early on in the book is that working with the earth fosters sustainability, while working against her makes things more difficult and unsustainable. And Margaret's work really embodies that particular lesson about sustainability. And so this book that she wrote, and it was published about this time last year, is called Meander, Making Room for Rivers. And the really, you know, just like what I just said about working with the earth fosters sustainability, you know, working with rivers means giving them space to do their thing, get bigger, get smaller, move around. And when people are building right up to the edge and hardening the edges of rivers, it makes everything, you know, increases flooding, uh, increases water pollution. And there's a lot of different different issues that happens. And another thing I really love about Margaret's book and then talking to her is that she is a water planner here in Western New York in the Great Lakes region and, you know, the Northeast. And so she really understands like uh, freshwater water planning. And this, this book, Meander, it does an incredible job 
of explaining the Buffalo Creek and Buffalo Creek and the Great Lakes water system, watershed system, and how it all works together and the history there of different ways that humans have influenced it. Um, the indigenous people of this place, the Haudenosaunee, they had a much more sustainable uh, relationship with the natural world and with water. And so she talks about them and then how um, the colonizers uh, have really you know, tried to engineer their way um, out of environmental issues for the past couple hundred years, and it's really wreaked havoc um, in so many different ways. Just really briefly about Margaret, I um, I came in contact with her a year ago when as her book was coming out because the company that I work for and do planning for, Prospect Hill Consulting, they helped make the maps. Um, they yeah created these incredible watershed maps that are found throughout the book. And then when I was doing some water planning as well for Prospect Hill last year, I, I talked to Margaret just to give me some advice and help and to understand um, a little bit better of what I could be doing on my own projects. So Margaret is an incredibly yeah, helpful person, and she's done a lot of incredible work to protect the water here in western New York for a long time. Um, she is a founding member of Buffalo Niagara Waterkeeper. She's taught environmental planning at the University of Buffalo, uh, State University of New York. And she's also written other books, including Living Waters, Reading the Rivers of the Lower Great Lakes. So thank you so much for listening. And please enjoy my conversation with Margaret Wooster. All right. Welcome, Margaret. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Uh, yeah, uh, I will start with the first question. Um and that is, I want to know, where did you grow up and what was that like? Mm, you might not have seen my email this morning. I did. Okay. <laughs> yes, I did. I want you to tell me about the quarry and, yeah, all of all of that. I wasn't able to read it completely. Okay. But I did see the picture. And, yeah, I want you to just sort of set the stage for people okay. um, to understand I, The that. reason I mentioned that is the only award, the, the only short story I've ever written that um, that I've won an award for is this story called the Cory, mm. and um, so it was. Um, uh, it's, it describes where I grew up. So I grew up on the east side of Buffalo on Victoria Avenue, it was a sort of lower middle class neighborhood, and uh, we had a block north of us this enormous limestone quarry, and uh, called Bennett Quarry. And um, they were uh, mining it for limestone and I think also for cement. And it was long done as a quarry by the time I came along in the, in the 50s. Mm. Um, and, uh, but I have seen, I saw at someone's exhibit a, a, an aerial photograph of that place when it was a full quarry. And it is unimaginable that we lived there, that our house was there. We, yeah. we weren't there yet. Um, in those times, because it was huge, this huge open wound on the Onondaga escarpment that mm -hmm. runs across Buffalo and goes through uh, Forest Lawn Cemetery, and and so that's where I grew up. And I grew up about maybe ten, twenty years after the quarry was abandoned, oh. and so it was a recovering landscape. Got it. And that's the key. To my existence yeah. because as a child I spent all my time there hunting snakes oh. and fossils okay and uh, spying on the hobos who came and stay uh, camped off the trains that ran through it was a pretty wild place and um, and yet it was a recovering 
landscape. Yeah. And to me, it was nature. You know, I didn't know that it wasn't like pure nature. It was just a, a beautiful, wonderful, exciting place. And yeah. um, so a lot of my writing um, came from there. And uh, a lot of what I remember of my earliest experiences of, you know, finding certain fossils and things, it's all from there. So, um, so yeah, I grew up in Buffalo in a very changing um I now realize environment. I didn't. It seems steady, and it would always be this way to me. <laughs> yeah, but it changed completely. What is it now? Now it is a. I hate to say it. Um, it's 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 it was a redlined district. Oh, okay. Uh, in real estate development, yeah. so people moved, um, and eventually my parents moved, um, and uh, and it is a very. Uh, impoverished area of the city and many of the houses have come down and and, okay yeah i guess for but the quarry itself like did they ever build on it or is it the quarry itself is being built on right now i think it's completed i think there's a big development project like a residential high rise that's gone in okay and i try i wrote to the developer and said look this is you know there are really important fossils here that like in the museum are in the museum make our museum Mm. of science famous yeah yeah. And um, and all that's under asphalt, which it was when I was growing up right. because they, they turned it into the Central Park Plaza. Mm. But um, I was hoping once that um, went away mm-hmm. that maybe we could recover some of the uh, outcrops of rock um, mm-hmm. and some of the landscape, the topography that was the quarry. It was, yeah. again, it was an interesting right. place. So we'll see. It taught me that time, you know... Um, Time is long, and you never should never look at one place and say, "This is it." Oh my God, we're screwed, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know? Right. Because you never know where you are in the continuum of that place. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, thank you. Um, okay, so I actually, yeah, the next question I have for you is about the, you know, the work that you've been doing, uh, your career. I guess, uh, if, what is water resources planning? Is that is that the right way to put it? Or yeah, how would you describe way. your your career and what you do? Um, I'm really interested in like how you got into yeah water resources planning and then how it's evolved over time. But I don't want to like pigeonhole you into one spot. I know you've done many things, so no, that's, if you could talk I about that. Welcome that. Um, the um, so I have a PhD in English literature, and that's probably why I've ended up pretty much being a writer. Mm. But um, but I learned uh, early on after what teaching English um, that I was um, I was more interested in where these poets the English poets like Keats and Blake and Wordsworth where they came from and they came from industrial London from you know a very uh, polluted environment and um, so I I and that's all through their poetry so I got really interested in that and um I went back to school and got a master's degree in planning and in, in um environmental planning. Oh okay. And um and I um I got my first job with the Erie Niagara Regional Planning Board as a watershed planner. Okay. But actually before that, when I was still in school, um, I got a grant from um, New York State Legislature to do a drainage study for the town of Evans. And, <laughs> okay. um And they, the town of Evans, like all the towns around here, was, you know, beginning to get built out and they were beginning to have a lot of drainage problems. Mm-hmm. 
And so they they wanted help from the university. And this is like stormwater drainage, storm right? Stormwater like drainage. That. So a big, yeah, like all, flooding we're seeing now. Just, yeah, yeah okay, all of that. So they, they, they wanted somebody from the university. So I was at the university. So, you know, I got to do, to work on this drainage study with, a, with two or three other people. And um, we did all the mapping. Um, we looked at um, all the, uh, the, the current land uses and the zoning, the regulations and stuff. And we figured out that the problem that they, they wanted an engineering solution. And we were, and we ended up saying, no, it's really not an engineering solution. It's, it's um, lowering the amount of impervious surface that you're mm-hmm. creating. And um, and so you need to have some regulations about floodplain right. development, wetland development. You need to have um, smaller lot zoning yeah. and stuff Can like you that. Can you explain really quickly for people why it's important to, like why impervious surfaces are bad for flooding and things like that? You'd think... You know, oh, that's protecting people, but why? Why would you want to have less impervious? Uh, you know, it's really gets into the whole thing about water and how water works, what water does, and um, one of the things that water in contact with the land does is it provides natural filtration to all surface contaminants, whether it's from cars or from houses or from industries or whatever. And um, and so when you um, when when you have a you know, 90% or 80% impervious, um, area, uh, you're going to get, you're going to get number one, the physical problems of flooding and poor drainage, but you're also going to get a lot more contamination, Mm. uh, flowing into wherever, whenever it finally does get to a stream, it will have collected all of the surface contaminants along the way. So, um, but anyway, to, to yeah, finish yeah. the, the, the town of Evans, yep. they, um, so we did, we worked with them. We worked with the town of Evans, the town of Eden, uh, the town of North Collins and, um, and with the Cattaraugus, uh, Seneca nation, um, and one other, uh, and the village, uh, anyway, a, a, a village of Angola and oh, another village. Yeah. So we had this group and we met for like two years, um, mm-hmm. with, uh, students f- in the planning school and, um, and them and our, wa- and a couple water resource specialists around. And, um, we came to the conclusion that they really had to change their land use regulations. Mm-hmm. And that was not a conclusion that they wanted to hear. They wanted, right. they wanted to get money to get, you know to get another ditch, another channelization, Mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say um, Cataraugus, the Seneca Nation really got it. They they, uh, they have much less of a problem with this than um, the others. And um, the town of uh, the town of Eden too. They're working with the Western New York Land Conservancy and trying Mm. to conserve their farmland and open space and so forth. So there was some, there was definitely some good things that came of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. What, when, when was that? Like what kind of <sighs> year, decade even? I'm just curious. Yeah. So 19, uh, I think I got, I think I started working at the planning board in 1988. Okay. And, um, and that was right after finishing that study. So they hired me as a watershed planner. Mm-hmm. And then I got to work for them for a couple of years on a, um, groundwater protection, wellhead protection program. Okay. And that was funded, uh, I don't know, but, but through a, through a federal, um, clean water mandate. Okay. And, uh, so we worked with, there was, um, seven or eight towns in, um, 
in Erie County and Niagara County that are still on uh, well water. Right. The municipal supply is well oh, water. Wow. Okay. Lots of individuals are are on well water everywhere, but you know the municipal supply was well water. And so we worked with those communities to say, okay, here's where your aquifer is. Here's mm-hmm. here are the recharge areas. Let's look at the zoning over those areas, mm-hmm. and um, and that's what we did. Okay, and that that's still going. Those those um, those municipalities still have um, their well water, right? And and we were trying to say, look, you know, and and the reason why they didn't connect into Erie Lake Erie water is. Um, it was too expensive. Uh, Not so much, you know, it wasn't so much of a water quality deal, but we were, we were as regional planners, we were saying, this is a water quality issue as well. If you, if you protect your, your aquifers that are underlying this mm -hmm. town, this city, you'll have your water, you know, you'll have your water for the future. Right. And if you don't, and if you just tie into the lake, uh, number one, it'll be expensive, but also you risk losing this, you know, supply that's been here for thousands of years. Yeah. I can, I mean, I think the, all those conversations are, yeah, they, they just keep happening and keep going. So yeah. What happened next? Uh, after that? <laughs> yeah. uh, then, um, I worked with a bunch of, uh, people here, uh, Linda Schneekloth, who you mentioned, um, Barry Boyer, uh, uh, Ken Sherman and others, and we founded uh, Friends of the Buffalo River, and mm-hmm. that was in um, the late '80s, and that was after um, the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement came out, uh, the, the revised edition, 1978, saying we have 42 areas of concern around the Great Lakes, which are highly polluted areas, and there's got to be work done. Right. Yeah. That is. I. I do want to be talking about the Great Lakes as an ecosystem on this for sure. But I think that's really interesting. That agreement is. I mean, and then yeah, my environmental law background but that's an international law right like that's an agreement between the united states and canada and it's not a law it's a treaty it's a treaty okay yes so it's an agreement so it's a it doesn't have the force of law okay but it did um it really was the um founding uh well anyway i'll I'll say that later but just to say um you know, when the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement was signed, it was 1972 the first time, mm-hmm. and that was when the Clean Water Act was first signed. So okay. they came together. together. Got it. And then in 1978, they were both revised, <laughs> and the uh, Great Lakes Agreement um, was revised. Uh, well, they both of them ha- say have the statement, which is the goal of this agreement mm-hmm. or the goal of this Clean Water Act is to... Um, Restore and maintain the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the waters of the United States for the Clean Water Act and of the Great Lakes ecosystem for the Great Lakes. Yeah. So that was really, really important to restore and maintain the physical, chemical, and biological oh, yeah. integrity of the waters. You've got to keep saying it. Right? you got got to keep saying it. <laughs> and, you know, and so um, it became kind of a toxics-focused thing for both. Yeah. Clean Water Act, too. I mean, mm-hmm. um, it was, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, reducing discharges and also, in the Great Lakes case, cleaning up contaminated harbors and rivers. 
But um, I maintain now that, um, and I worked. I worked on that. Um, I worked. I ended up working for Great Lakes United for eight years. I was the executive director of this group, and we, um, and you know, we went to all of the meetings of the International Joint Commission, and we were very vocal and very present in the discussions of what's going to happen next. How are we? How are we going to? Restore mm. um, and um, let alone maintain, <laughs> <laughs> right? And um, so uh, I just lost my train of thought. That's about, no, yeah. that's okay. That was that was really good. You were talking about friends of the uh, friends of the Buffalo River. River, yeah. So we formed, and as a uh, we we formed in in nineteen, I think eighty seven, maybe, and. Um, it was just like four or five of us, but then our congressman Brian Higgins, he became, uh, he came on our board, and we had other um, good people, and um, and so we became a bit of a force in terms of uh, what was going to happen with the Buffalo River area of concern, which was one of those forty-two mm. that were uh, mentioned by the International Joint Commission. So we be, we became sort of stakeholders and spokespersons for the Buffalo River, yeah, and. Um, so I went to the first, they, um, at the same time, Great Lakes United, the citizens group started and they had, they were holding hearings around the Great Lakes Basin. And I went to the one that they had in Buffalo and I was amazed because we were, you know, we were struggling with how do we clean up these contaminated sediments and where mm. are we going to put them? And, um, and, and what is, um, how are we going to stop, um, discharges of t- toxic contaminants into the system and our goal is zero discharge but the way permits are written they they always allow they permit they permit uh, they yeah. permit pollution so mm-hmm. all these big questions and when the when glue had these hearings these public hearings around the basin the one they came to buffalo and i went to that and i it was Great. I heard people from all over the basin on these panels talking mm. about the exact same problems we were having, and we realized this yeah. is a Great Lakes problem. And so then, uh, one way or another, a few years later, I became executive director of that organization and, mm. and um, really got a great education from all the people around the basin who are working on this. Indigenous, Canadian, and U.S. Yeah. Labor unions, sports fishers, and residents. So we had a very wide, you know, reach. Yeah. No, that's, that's amazing. Thank you. Um, yeah. How did, so I guess after that was like kind of the activism side, were you also doing like the planning, planning as well? Like how did you incorporate your like showing up to the Great Lakes Commission stuff and then the water planning that you were also doing like, you they, know yeah. they were they were related but um this was a whole education at another level and yeah. it was on federal and um you know u.s and canadian policy um so i was on a lot of committees uh, i went to chicago a lot because the um the epa region five which uh, sort of responsible for the great lakes stuff mm. uh headquarters are there nice and the IJC has offices there. And um, so I learned about, um, you know, the uh, all the differences between Canadian and U.S. regulations and um, how are we going to change them. We, we, we as Great Lakes United, 
were really an advocacy group, so we went to Washington, D.C., we went to Ottawa, we spoke to Parliament, we spoke to uh, our Congress, our, our Great Lakes Congress members, and um, and brought this story to them that the Great Lakes is the largest freshwater ecosystem in the world and it's under threat mm-hmm. and we need your help. And what we were looking for was for them to grant of some big grants to um, state and local governments to do the right thing for the water. Um, there were um, cleanups um, and prevention uh, scenarios that were we were advocating. And so we we, um, we did that, and that the the good thing there, I think, is that the uh, all of that work of having these thirty people from the Great Lakes show up in D.C. or in Ottawa, mm-hmm. and speaking from Indigenous people and Canadian people and U.S. people all speaking to these same issues, um, was pretty powerful. And um, so for me, that was um, that's the template almost for going forward because mm. we're going to really have to start thinking about the Great Lakes um, as an ecosystem again and and start uniting with communities around the Great Lakes um, to do whatever needs to be done. Yeah, thank you. I do still want to talk about yeah, meander and Buffalo Creek. So just specifically, yeah, what do you mean by the concept of meander and then, yeah, why is it important to make room for rivers? You're just talking about how with Buffalo Creek and other ones, yeah, we're burying them, avoiding them, all that. But why Why would it be important to actually give them their space? Mm, and I think probably here, and I, I need to work on this uh, analogy, but, you know, it's like a physical analogy to our own bodies um, that we sort of, you know, we have to watch what we put into them, you know, the toxics and stuff that we eat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we have to... Um, you know, be aware of uh, the biological influences uh, on our own bodies um, and the interchanges with the biology around us. I suppose, you know, that could cover everything from flu to, um, you know, to just physical exercise. And, and mm-hmm. But then the physical, uh, you know, so I'm going back to physical, chemical, and biological. Um, uh, the physical uh, meaning of meander for streams is that uh, me, streams are categorized by sinuosity, like how much they meander. Um, and that's long going back um, many years, just understanding streams and how they work and maybe even predicting how they work. Uh, you look at the look at the difference between the stream's actual, like A to B, if you could draw a line from source to mouth, mm-hmm. uh, what uh, and then compare that to the actual length of the stream as it meanders. Oh, okay. That's called its sinuosity, and um, that's a really important factor um, in understanding stream health. Mm. And so meander um, is all about uh, connectivity. It's all about how streams um, form their own beds and, um, and inform the landscapes around them. So it's about connectivity. So mm-hmm. meander is about, you know, the way in which water moves through the land and hydrates the land is obviously increased if it's not sluicing through really fast mm-hmm. in a channelized hard hardscape or underground in a, in a tunnel. Uh, but if it's meandering across the landscape, all that transfer of nutrients and minerals is happening in the stream. So mm. there's that. 
Um, and that makes sense. Yeah. And then there's also just meander is a way of, so it's, it's, um, it has to do with the goodness of streams in terms of their work in the landscape. It has to do with their stability in terms of their ability to, um, to withstand uh, storms, sudden runoff, you know, right. flooding, um, ice, you know, ice out. Mm. Um, all those things are um, cushioned by a stream's ability to meander. And the, the, um, the consequences of, say, ice out and suddenly you have, you know, this huge, these huge blocks of ice moving down the river and blocking somewhere and, um, and then flooding... If you have a meandering stream, you have a lot more room to mm. absorb the shock of that. That makes sense. So the stability. Um, and then also habitat. I mean, meander is like incredibly important. We think of streams as just these, you know, sort of <laughs> these little lines of water running through the landscape. But actually, they are, uh, you know, they are complex. And um, the bottom, the stream, the benthic life that lives in the bottom of the stream mm-hmm. um, is there because um, it's there because it's there. It's depending on whatever, however that stream is flowing through the landscape. So um, if the meander is cut off and it's just, you know, the water is just sluicing straight through, you're losing tons of habitat for the aquatic insects, the mussels, everything that lives in the bottom of the stream in those sediments um, is impacted when you start um, rechanneling mm-hmm. streams and hardening stream banks. So meander is about, really, it's about connectivity. It's mm-hmm. connectivity with the groundwater. It's about connectivity upstream and downstream. Um, and um, so in that way, it's essential really so, some of the fluvial geomorphologists uh that i've read yeah, yeah they <laughs> say <a> yeah they <laughs> yeah. say a meander is the missing link okay in terms of our understanding of how streams yeah. work yeah it's just so interesting that like that's like the leave it alone or let nature figure it out because it is so complex is actually like a better solution than trying to like yeah, you know in. figure it out with our like math and yeah machines and things like that it's just it's really hard for people to like actually think that the best solution is to let things go (laughs) like that's just it's very counterintuitive from what we've all at least what i've been exposed to as like solutions like we have to do something instead of like actually let's back off so i appreciate yeah like you said like missing or someone else said to you like missing link for a lot of water um, management, just the way that we're thinking about all of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, we are not encouraged to. We're not encouraged to just look at the situation and um, and study it until we can begin to understand how these processes work. And yeah. um, and that's really you know that's really what we need to do. We need to understand why is this river doing this thing right now? Why is Lake Erie doing what it's doing? Which, mm-hmm. which is, you know, Lake Erie is not in good shape. It's yeah. our water supply and it's not right. in good shape. That yeah. should give us pause. Okay. We have a couple of minutes. Yeah. Let's talk about Lake Erie. Just, <laughs> yeah. In general, I'm yeah very curious. Like, yeah. What, what is, when you say Lake Erie is not in very good shape, I don't know. I'm trying to think of how to ask this question. Like almost if you had a magic wand and could like address like, one thing like what would you what would you focus on or just how is Lake Erie not in good shape because it's 
you know, you, I, I, as someone that does know more than other people and people ask me and I still don't have a good, you know, it's like, oh, you can fish in it. Oh, you can't like, oh, you can swim in it. Oh, you can't. Um, yeah. It's, well, it's the most vulnerable of the Great Lakes because it's the shallowest. shallowest. Okay. So it's like, That's you know, helpful. 60 feet deep on average and much, most of the Western basin around, uh, Detroit and, um, Toledo of the, of Lake Erie is like, the average depth is like two feet. It's mm. very shallow. Oh, and oh. Uh, so it's it's sort of like a big wetland uh, at, at the western end, mm. and then at our end. Um, so you know, imagine it as a east as a west east you know lake. Yeah. Um, basically, uh, at our end, uh, there's a deep hole, which I don't really know. Uh, you know, your listeners might want to do research on yeah. this. There's a deep hole in Lake Erie. Uh, in the eastern basin, oh. and that has saved us from some of the worst algae blooms and stuff that have been oh, happening in the lake. Yeah, because there's more fresh water there. There's more cold water um, because it's deeper. Mm-hmm. But um, I would say that the so the it's it is a shallow lake naturally, and then it is the most industrialized and populated lake. Oh, okay, and so there's people all around, and um, and so now there, uh, I've been. Um, going to the IJC meetings virtually um, this last over this last year because they're working on their water quality board is working on Lake Erie, which they call poor and deteriorating. Those uh, are the those are the words those for are Lake the words. Erie. Poor condition, poor and deteriorating. Uh, yeah. from the what is that? The international from the International Joint Commission, Commission of the Great Lakes of the Great Lakes. Yeah. Yep. And um, so why? So uh, one of the things they're looking at what's coming into Lake Erie, and a lot of it is because the, it's been dredged, and um, and all the communities um, across Ohio, which has the most shoreline in the U.S., um, have um, uh, con- have disposal have dre- have dredged their harbors and their ports, and um, and put that stuff along the edges of Lake Erie, just as we did. We, oh, our outer harbor okay. is full of um, land, you know, basically um, landfill sediment landfills. Right. You did, yeah. You posed the question earlier, just like where do we put the dredged material, and yeah, like where does it go? Does it when yeah. you go if you go to the outer <laughs> harbor and you go to like. You know, you go to the small boat harbor, or you go to Times Beach. Mm-hmm. Um, you you see these um, <clears throat> these um, uh, not break walls, but um, God, what do they call them? Anyway, you see these arms of stone. You know, making uh-huh. these sort of little elbow arms out into the lake, and um, and those are were deliberately put there to create these little lagoons where they could where they could put the sediments. Mm. So um, the small boat harbor times beach um, along Lake Erie here uh, were um, sediment, contaminated sediment yeah. landfills or, oh, okay. or lake fills. I see. And then they created uh, the most recent one um, was uh, is, uh, is at the southern border of the city of Buffalo bordering on uh, Lackawanna. And that's, if you fly over, it looks like a big fan out into the lake. It's a sort of um, like the, a quarter of a circle out into the lake, and that's a confined disposal facility. So that's where we're putting all the dredge spoils Still. now. Oh, yeah. okay. 
but that is um, it's supposedly safe because it's mm. uh, lined as mm. the other ones were never lined never lined yeah. but um, I've seen sediment core um, reports from all of those areas along the lake and there's a lot of contamination of mercury and PCBs and Mm -hmm. the stuff that was in those sediments. Right. From like the history of steel production. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, we did, I did ask you about places where people do make room for rivers. So you talked about the Dutch, um, but I wanted to also kind of come back to that um, to talk about the outer Harbor and then the concept of a great lakes commons. So yeah, (laughs) if you can talk about, yeah, what is the Buffalo Outer Harbor for, yeah. I Honestly, I met someone recently there who had never been there and, you know, lived in Buffalo. It's it's interesting how it's kind of, it is off the beaten path. So, yeah, let's just talk about yeah, Outer Harbor. Yeah, it's got the Skyway link, and that's about it. So yeah. uh, people who don't like to drive over the Skyway for whatever reason, you know, don't get there. No buses, yeah. No, yeah, there is one bus, I oh. think, that goes once a day um, <laughs> for the, you know, the, the, the public transit people in our Outer Harbor. So we have a group... Um, our Outer Harbor Coalition, and we have about, we have 30 active members and then a couple hundred people who've come to our meetings. We've had, we've had several public meetings. Um, and, um, and basically we're, we're here to kind of monitor the, uh, what the Erie Canal Harbor Development Corporation is doing out there because they own, they own uh, 700 and some acres along the edge and, um, but they're a development corporation. So, you know, their first plan was to put resident, they wanted Toronto, you know, Mm -hmm. high rise residential towers, you know, along that. Well, they couldn't do that because it's, um, that whole shoreline is made. It's, it's, um, Mm -hmm. it's engineered, uh, it, the, 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 the water didn't, the, the soil, the land did not go out that far into the lake. Um, so the bearing capacity for, you know, 23 story towers and so forth. Oh, it's just not physically there. you can't do that. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, that's yeah. what we say. There are still developers who say, Oh yes, we can, you, you, we can, can do it. Do we can it. do anything. Yeah. yeah. Got it. But, um, so yeah, the, um, so the, the, there's been this fight since 2014, mm-hmm. um, when, um, the Erie Canal Harbor Development Corporation took over and um and we've been trying to um have input into the plan we've met with them many many times um and we thought we were making progress and we did make some progress um and you know they've they've really uh stopped um promoting housing and um but they still want to make money cuz they're a development corporation so you can't mm. blame them they are what they are yeah that's their that's yeah, their that's thing what they do, yeah. but um but it's our outer harbor it's a public it's mostly public land mm-hmm. and so they you know they get around that by leasing it um they're thinking about selling um and um and they have sold pieces of it i think and so, uh, yeah, it's, um, so now the big, the big fight is over this, um, they want to put a 8,000 person concert venue out there. And, um, you know, this is an area that's beginning to renaturalize and regenerate mm-hmm. really on its own, uh, without much help from us. It's, it's already looking kind of good. The trees are getting a little yeah. mature and, mm-hmm. and so, um, 
we, uh, you know, we want to see more of that. We want to work with nature. We want to, you know, my metaphor is uh, darning socks. I have a good <laughs> idea about darning socks, raveling. So we talk about rivers unraveling and Great Lakes ecosystem unraveling, coming mm-hmm. apart, not able to do what it does, what it's we've what it's always done, mm-hmm. because pieces are missing. And um, and my grandmother used to darn socks in our living room um, whenever she came and visited for Christmas. And it was like she was raveling. You know, mm-hmm. our socks had come unraveled. She was raveling. And, and mm-hmm. there's a whole process to darning a sock. So I think that process is what we need when we think about recovering the waterfront. We need to look around. We need to see there's a hole there. Something's not that should be happening is not happening. Yeah. And then figure out how to uh, weave back the connections between the Buffalo River Delta, which is what the Outer Harbor is, and the lake. Yeah. And if we could re re begin to understand and um, and experimentally reconnect some of those connections, like between Tift Nature Preserve and the lake, mm. um, we could begin to restore to truly restore, yeah. uh, you know, a healthy and active coastal ecosystem. But if we keep putting stuff, you know, the, the, to the ECHDC. This is vacant land. They mm-hmm. always call it vacant land, substandard vacant land. <laughs> and so, you know, they, they want to put things on it and right. then they want to charge high prices, like $200 a ticket, you know, to mm. come to this concert for mm. 8,000 people. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So, uh, but it's, it's a form of privatization. It's yeah. not equitable to people right. who want to, it takes the use away from anyone who's not going to the concert. Mm-hmm. Plus it completely destroys the habitat for the birds and the animals mm-hmm. that are living there. Um, and it can, I mean, we're in Buffalo and the outer Harbor. I mean, I've been, I've taken my dogs for a walk in Buffalo and in the winter and it's like, Oh, this is pretty cold. And then I'm like, let's go out to the outer Harbor. And it's like an Arctic tundra. And I just, you're not going to have a concert there. So it's definitely a, it's yeah, a seasonal use. Seasonal thing, yeah. So to do that amount of damage for a seasonal use for, for, yeah. I mean, it's not a limited number of people. 8,000 is a lot of people, but mm-hmm. you know, but maybe, you know, maybe there's a mega concert out there 10 times a season. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and what have we lost? We've lost, you know, they want grass. They want people to be able to sit on the lawn. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they're not going to put chairs. They're going to have grass, but they have to spray pesticides. That's mm. in their plan because, mm. you know, and there's a lot of mosquitoes at night. There are, yeah. yeah. So they'll be spraying and there'll be lights and there'll be noise and mm-hmm. they'll be parking wherever they can, you know, parking on the grass. Yeah. Um, they, they talk about overflow parking on the grass. So that's all yeah. what's involved. Yeah. That's disappointing. And yeah, I, I also just see, yeah, the accessibility of the Outer Harbor is like, yeah, you have to have a car. Um, and yeah. Then, and then each person is individually taking a car. So, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there's a, uh, Citizens for Regional Transit have lots of great ideas. They're part oh, of our coalition good. and they have good ideas for, um, for increasing public transportation to the Outer Harbor. Nice. All right. Well, we're basically at the end. Um, okay. I I didn't get to the story of the Hill of Water. Um, uh-huh. And then, yeah, but that, I don't know. I almost feel like if you want to say a few words about uh, the Hill of Water, you yeah, let, let's talk about it because I, I, you were explaining it to me the other day, and it was yeah, it was amazing. You can also just tell people to get your book, and yeah, <laughs> and people can, just get my book. Yeah, it's it's in yeah. there. 
Um, it's so after nine, I think. Yeah, <laughs> it's after nine. I think, you know, in following Buffalo Creek to its source, uh, we came, uh, and we were looking at maps, um, and, um, uh, we came to, um, we came to this source, the, the easternmost source. There's really two, um, big uh, tributary systems that, uh, that are the source of the Buffalo Creek, but they, they both tie into the same, um, terminal moraine um, aquifer. So there's an aquifer uh, in the headwaters for um, all of our streams that is the last, it's where the glacier stopped mm. and where the glacier stopped and, um, and, and left this terminal moraine, this long ridge of uh, stuff, stone, everything else that it dragged back, uh, it, it, it left that there. So that's a, that, that, we live in a bowl. The Great Lakes is a bowl, and the rim of the bowl uh, is the are these glacial moraine formations that exist all around the Great Lakes, mm-hmm. and um, and there are not only watershed divides. That's what keeps the Great Lakes basin itself versus anything you know to south, like the Allegheny River is draining south to to the Mississippi. But there are also water bearing structures, and um, so to our surprise. Uh, for Buffalo Creek, the main, what I would call the main, the highest uh, tributary system is um, at the, uh, starts at this hill in Wyoming County. And, um, and the, um, and it turns out that so does, uh, so does the source of um, Cattaraugus Creek and the source of Tonawanda Creek. So those are our three major streams here, you know. And they all start on they, the same hill. Yeah. Like that at the is, base. Yeah, the at same the base hill. of the same hill. Like yeah. that is, that blows my mind. Yeah. yeah. And, and it blew your mind too, It right? blew my yeah. mind because that hill, you know, it's, um, so there's U.S. Geological Service maps of that hill and of the aquifer. Um, and you can really get a, a sense um, of, of how much water there is there yeah. uh, because uh, it's a those are um, high yield. Anybody who's got a well in 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 there uh, has um, it's high yield, hundred gallons per minute, or maybe up to five hundred gallons per minute water coming out of the ground, and um, and it's unconfined, so that um, aquifer is continuous with the surface water not but not underneath like a clay or stone layer Mm. and um and it is uh it it it's it's definitely under threat um but it's it's there and it is it is the source of our water yeah so and the and so and the thing about it is uh those hills um were forested when I first was looking around many years ago, like at least 10, maybe even 20 years ago. I, I think I sort of knew this because I was looking around then at the sources of, of Tonawanda Creek for some other thing I was working on. And, um, and you know, it's, uh, it's still there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's still there. So, but there's, I don't know. Yeah, I I mean, do you want me to say, (laughs) Wyoming County, very high in farming. So you can just imagine this hill of water is all over with a lot of agriculture. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I I wasn't sure not say it. I I just forgot. Just to say under threat, and I just wanted to be. I'm okay with being a little more specific. Oh yeah. (laughs) Well, just to say. I mean, so I've been there a lot in the last four years, trying to look at what's happening, 
and interviewing some of the people who work for the county and and also work for the USDA, USDA uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service. Mm. That's all in the book, the co- uh, conversations with them. But basically, um, yeah, there's a da- uh, Wyoming County is the dairy capital of New York State. Okay. And so uh, they have, an, and the way in which the regulations are written, the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, is business oriented. It's you know uh, profit oriented, like all of our institutions in this country, um, and um, and uh, so they uh, their subsidy structures for farmers tend to favor mega dairy farms that yeah. are co- concentrated animal feed operations, right. CAFOs. Yeah, and that's what's happening in Wyoming County. There are a lot of those. Um, and they're in these hills, and the problem with them is is that the very thing that water needs in your headwaters for streams, um, if if the middle part needs to be making room for rivers and, and allowing meanders uh, to do naturally, uh, the headwaters is really um, needs to have trees. The mm. trees are what protect the whatever cold water streams we have in western New York where there might be a brook trout you know, a heritage <laughs> brook trout still. Um, those are in the headwaters where the water the, is um, mostly groundwater coming up and it's cold mm. and uh, and full of minerals and so forth. And what's happening in the headwaters here is um, it's, they are being, the trees are being cut down so that they can spread the manure from these, these dairy farms. Dairy farms, yeah. So the dairy, the dairy farm manure issue is huge not only here but for all of lake erie yeah so the ijc that's what they're actually focused on right now too Mm -hmm. yeah i definitely heard about that yeah around here and then across the lake in ohio and yeah well thank you for all of this information (laughs) it's i mean i think about it all the time and it's nice to talk to someone else about it um yeah i want you to have the last word so any parting thoughts or recommendations for people listening um, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. I was I, I was thinking um, we've already talked about coastal rewilding in the Great Lakes. That's my my dream. My vision is to work with Lackawanna, you know, uh, Hamburg, Evans, the Cattaraugus, Seneca Nation, uh, and and beyond to start uh, working on that rewilding of the coastlines. And there's mm. there's there's bits all the way along that can be built on. Yeah, but um, the real thing. I was with a group of people yesterday, um, taking them on a field trip to the Oxbow, um, and they're like the their Erie County Water Quality Coordinating Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went on this little field trip, and um, and they were saying, "Well, what can we do? What can we do?" You know, it's like um, you know, everybody feels so discouraged, and. Um, I, I think that um, we have to uh, really th- understand that it is up to us. We can't depend on the Erie Canal Harbor Development people or um, or even uh, Erie County or any one of our governments to actually come in and fix stuff. Um, we really need to educate ourselves. We, the people who live here, need to educate <laughs> yeah. ourselves on what's here. We mm-hmm. need to learn about it um, in order to defend it. And then we have to betre- befriend, you know, our politicians and our council members and so forth, who are all really great people, but they don't know this stuff. They're not out. They don't have yeah. time to look at this. Right. And um, 
we've had we have a great common council mm-hmm. yeah i I really appreciate this book and i I mean, I haven't read all of it yet. I'm about a third of the way in, and I just am like, I want to tell everybody about all of all of this information because even though, like, yeah, I am doing natural resources planning right now, and it makes sense. It's like this is so relevant for everybody, and I, I mean, there is like always like connection to nature, and all of that is really important. I don't know to me for like health and well-being and just general like groundedness and being here but um also like just yeah where your water comes from and then the infrastructure of the city like it's just it's all so relevant to our lives and i know that it's hard life right now is so overwhelming with so many different issues um but i i do think that it all comes back to water um and land and people and how that how we all work together. together and the animals yeah so Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would just say, and I know we're way over time, so this oh, probably won't make it to the thing. Yeah. But, but um, okay. if you, if you do cut any, I mean, I, anyway, this would be a nice link for your um, listeners. Um, so we also have the really the, the the very positive thing of having indigenous communities, right? Uh, especially in New York, um, the Haudenosaunee people. There live on their remnants, much small remnants mm-hmm. from what they had, but remnants of their original land. And so the Seneca and the Tuscarora um, uh, are still here, and they're very much involved in this water conserv- conversation. Yeah. And um, so there's something called digital wampum, which you, people could look up. They could just mm. Google digital wampum. And um, it's a series of YouTube videos with, um, with uh, the Onondaga, uh, people, um, and, uh, and Seneca and, um, and they're talking about, they're talking about this exact same thing, like oh, okay. what's happening to the water and what do we do about it? Yeah. Um, and, um, and they're pretty dark, but they're also, uh, you know, uh, Oren Lyons gives a great talk, uh, explaining how did we get into this situation? Mm-hmm. Um, and says, um, you know, finally, it's up to us. You know, there's no nothing coming. There's no, you know, there's no profit coming. There's no Army Corps of Engineers coming. There's no huge amount of money coming. There's no nothing coming that's going to fix this. It's up to us to do it. And I totally believe that. Yeah. And what we have to do is get out there and look at what's, look at our water and find out yeah. what's happening and, and what we can do. Yeah. 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 All right. Thanks, Margaret. I appreciate it. Yep. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Keeping Things Alive podcast. For more information, please visit www.keepingthingsalive.org.